This is a piece by a guy named Larry Taunton. Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Pick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Welcome into the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I am Larry Alex Taunton, and today is part two of Patesh Prison. We're going to talk about that just a little bit uh, today. I spelled it wrong on the previous show, but uh, regardless, uh, you can find an article about this on my website at LarryAlexTaunton.com, and I also wrote an interesting thread about this on Twitter but I want to begin. I want to begin today by talking about a little bit of a Marxist literary mystery. Some of you will recall the 1987 film, The Fourth Protocol. It was a film that starred uh, Pierce Brosnan, Michael Caine. It's an okay movie. Uh, it's a Frederick Frederick Forsyth. Frederick Forsyth novel, and I I have immense respect for Forsyth, who is in his 80s now, and I don't know if he's still publishing or not, but he's a British writer, a great mystery, um, thriller, espionage writer. And part of what I love about Forsyth is, see, Forsyth was a, uh, a pilot in the Royal Air Force, uh, he was a journalist back when it really meant something. He was a guy who went all over uh, the world. And in the process, he was kind of hiding his, I mean, he was doing real journalism, but he was hiding his activities for MI6. He was, he was actually an operative uh, for the British equivalent of the CIA. And he wrote The Day of the Jackal. Uh, he wrote, what's another one of his, uh, his great novels? The Odessa File was another one. Both of those were made into uh, films in the 1970s. If you haven't seen them, they're worth watching. And uh, The Day of the Jackal was remade in the 90s. It was remade into yet another film. But anyway, I was listening on Audible to this book, The Fourth Protocol, which I hadn't read and again, because I'm a fan of uh, Forsyth, Forsyth is a kind of uh, Clancy-esque writer, but uh, in my opinion, he's the greatest writer of, of the genre, and in part because he's quite sophisticated, both in his understanding and in his explanations, and he writes with an economy of words. So here I am listening to this. I am, uh, again, I download it onto Audible, and something I very much enjoy doing is when I am mowing, uh, which uh, takes hours, you know, if you're mowing, you know, the, the acreage on, on my, my ranch, uh, I put on those noise-canceling headsets, and uh, here I am sitting in something like a, something like a, a a lazy boy recliner that has a mowing deck, you know, underneath it is, it's it's quite comfortable, and uh, I've since sold it, uh, unfortunately. But the type you have to seatbelt yourself in because it moves pretty quick, and I listened for hours um, to books, and the fourth protocol. He has a an entire, gosh, at least one chapter, it might be multiple chapters that are explaining, again, written in 1984, that is explaining 
the Marxist tactics for taking over uh, a society, for taking over a country's government, for toppling that government and then taking it over. And I was fascinated. You know, there were times where as I'm, I'm riding along on my mower, I stop, I take my phone out, and I start to, um, to take some notes about what he's saying. And again, because of my background in, in uh, Russian history, and in Marxism and socialism, I thought, boy, this guy's done his research. I mean, he he really knows what he's talking about. And this was just fascinating uh, to me as I'm as I'm listening to this uh, again, written in the 1980s, well before BLM or Antifa, you know, started the things that they were doing. He's describing what they were doing in Britain during the 1970s and the 1980s. So I decided, and some people ask me about my research method. And here's a little insight to something that I do. Sometimes I listen to things, but then I download the electronic version of it so that it's searchable. It's, you know, it's searchable by words or by phrases. Uh, even if I'm reading, you know, a book, uh, the physical copy of the book, sometimes I also get it in the electronic version just so I can search it for, for words and phrases. So anyway, I decided, gosh, I'd really like to read this, put my eyes on it, not just listen to it. So I go and I download uh, the electronic version of the book. And guess what? All of those passages are gone. They're not there. The passages are gone. So I thought, well, this is odd. Here I have listened to the entire thing. And the passages that describe the Marxist tactics for overthrowing a government are not there. The, the parts of the book that describe the way Antifa and BLM uh, and media and, um, you know, uh, you, you name it, uh, various uh, uh, elements, subversive elements within government, all that stuff has been removed. So... What did I do? I decided to order three copies of the book. So I go on to, I, I think you pronounce it Abe Books, A-B-E Books.com, which unfortunately now is owned by Amazon, but it's where you can find good used books online. So here's what I did. I ordered the Hutchison and Company copy of the book, the hardback copy of the book, and this is the UK copy of the book uh, in 1984 the 84 version. Then I ordered the Viking U.S. edition of the book, also hard copy, also 1984. And then I ordered the, uh, the 1995 Bantam edition, paperback uh, edition of the book. Now here's where the mystery deepens. And again, you can say I'm a nerd, I'm a guy who, but I, I pay attention to what I read, and I pay attention to what I'm listening to. The UK version of the book, the original version of the book, this is clearly the one that the audible reader is reading from. So those sections are in the UK edition. The US editions did not come out until uh, a year later, 1985. And in the U.S. editions, those passages have all been removed. They've all been removed. And that's fascinating to me because the question becomes, why would you take them out? 
It's not like the entire chapters are missing. Uh, it's and and here's another thing: the books themselves say. Listen to this. This edition. This is the U.S. This is the Bantam. 1995 edition. This edition contains the complete text of the original hardcover edition, and then it has in caps, in caps, not one word has been omitted. Not one word has been omitted. And that actually is flatly false because they weren't anticipating that a guy like me <laughs> was going to pick up these books and compare them because the fact is the entire text isn't contained in this one. It isn't contained in this one. It is contained in the original British edition. But for some reason, the American versions of the book had these parts removed. And these are the parts that deal with Marxism. They're the parts that deal with, with Marxist tactics. Now, listen, does this mean there was some sinister plot in order to, uh, you know, to, 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 to take these things out? Uh, maybe. I, I don't know. Uh, it could just simply be that they decided the book uh, was too long and that they needed to, um, to reduce it in length. But it's odd because it's paragraphs that have been removed. It's not the entire chapters that have been removed. And it's parts that deal specifically with Marxist tactics. Now, that, that to me is, uh, is quite interesting. And yet, the Audible edition, which is, of course, Amazon, the reader is reading from the British version of the book. And if you go online, and I've forgotten the name of it, it's like archive.org or archive.com, where you can check out books online for an hour or so. You find various things um, in those, but it's only in the British text do you find that this stuff is still in there. So those of you who are sleuths at home, maybe retirees, somebody who has the time or likes to uh, solve these kind of puzzles, this is one for you to try to figure out because I wonder if Forsyth, I wish I had his uh, contact information, uh, I wonder if Forsyth is aware that they've done this to his text because Forsyth, again, is a guy where, where Clancy loves to go into the details of the technology. You know, For instance, um, in his book, um, Suddenly, The Sum of All Fears, he has multiple chapters on how to build an atomic bomb, and he says he's simply removed, um, you know, a, um, a key ingredient here or there. But otherwise, this was all stuff. Uh, I remember him in an interview saying, when, you know, shortly after that book was published, that, you know, hey, aren't you telling people how to build an atomic bomb? And he said, look, you can go to your local library and you know find this information. I, I've taken something out, but that's just to make people like you feel better about it. But, uh, but Clancy loved to get into the weeds of that kind of stuff. Forsyth doesn't. He's not interested in, um, you know, Clancy is really the, the pioneer of what would become known as the techno-thriller. The techno-thriller. Forsyth loves to get into the weeds of politics, and that's because where he's, he's most comfortable, it's what he knows. He's very familiar with the workings of MI6. I mean, he was part of MI6. He's, very, he's like John le Carré, you know, in, in, in that regard. A little more upbeat. John le Carré, at the end, usually makes me want to slip my wrists. Uh, it's, it's very, very depressing reading John le Carré novels. Uh, a Forsyth, the good guys always win. 
uh, in the end. The earth does not get blown up by the, uh, by the baddies. And uh, his own position is patriotic and you, you, know, you like him and his heroes are likable. There are no heroes in uh, Le Carre novels. But Forsyth gets into the weeds of the politics. And so everything that he's talking about, I can tell you when he's explaining how Marxist tactics work, it's true. It's real. Uh, this is exactly the way they work. And it's a very sophisticated, accurate description of the way governments are undermined throughout the world by Marxist elements. <clears throat> so it's curious to me that these passages should be removed from the American American uh, editions of this text. So um, for those of you who are interested, you can read a little bit more about this on my website at LarryAlexTaunton.com. LarryAlexTaunton.com, you'll find it there, and uh, you'll find a little bit more um, about this. And uh, by the way, the film it's not available on any streaming service. And this is a film, again, this is a blockbuster, you know, summer film some years ago. Again, 1987 with Pierce Brosnan, with uh, Michael Caine. So these are major marquee names. And at the time of my speaking right now, it is not available on any major streaming service. So again, I went online and I've ordered, uh, you know, maybe a $10 copy of an old DVD of this, a used DVD of this particular film so that I could watch the film and see if the film contained any elements of this. And uh, the film doesn't. It's all, you know, a, a film necessarily reduces it to a shoot 'em up you know, chase scenes and this kind of thing, which is not uh, an accurate portrayal um, of the novel. The novel's 10 times better. Uh, then yeah, I don't know if you've you ever have you ever seen a movie where the movie was better than the uh, than the novel. I, the one that immediately comes to my mind is Lonesome Dove. Larry McMurtry's book Lonesome Dove is a is a very good book, but Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Duvall are just stunning in that film. Best western of all time, Lonesome Dove. You can find that uh, online uh, um, and, and on streaming services and such too. So why would you remove from a book like this the bits that deal with Marxist tactics for undermining a society? We're going to take a, uh, a break right now. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Pitesht Prison. P-I-T-E-S-T-I. -I. I said it, I spelled it th wrong three times in the previous episode. Pitesht Prison in Romania. And we're going to talk about the lessons that we can learn from a prison like this, arguably the most terrifying prison in the world that is now a memorial uh, largely to Christians who are arrested there and other anti-communists and tortured in that place. We will be back in just a few moments. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Larry is my favorite player. Welcome back to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I am Larry Alex Taunton. And as promised, this is part two of the Patesht prison, the uh, Patesht experiment, as it was called, arguably the most terrifying prison in the world. And I, and I want to tell you a little bit about the journey, you know, why this even matters. Some of you, you know, who are perhaps a little older than I am, uh, will recall a book 
by Romanian Lutheran uh, pastor uh, Richard Wormbrand. It was called Tortured for Christ. He wrote another book called Marx and Satan. Um, both of them are worth reading. And these aren't sensationalist uh, uh, books. They are uh, truthful accounts. Uh, first, of Tortured for Christ is telling his own story. I mean, Wormbrand was a guy who was, uh, he'd become a Christian. He was a pastor uh, in uh, Romania when the Germans invaded that country in 1941. And then, of course, when the Russians, <clears throat> after Stalingrad, turned the tide of the war and began driving the Germans out of Russia, <clears throat> the, the Russians overran Romania in 1945 and they took over that country. So guys like Wormbrand, Romanians, they threw off one oppressor, the Germans, the Nazis, the fascists, for another, the Russians, the communists, the Stalinists, who then took over the country. And so this was no better if you were, uh, you were an anti-communist, which Christians by definition are anti-communists. And so a guy like Wormbrand, you know, just go from one prison um, into the next, from the fascist prison into the communist prison. And Tortured for Christ is telling his story of what that is like. I would strongly recommend that you read the book, Tortured for Christ. And then he wrote a book called Marx and Satan, in which he's explaining how Marxism is satanic. Um, now, you can laugh that off and say, this is silly. Read the book. Uh, he is giving an accurate account of Marx's own writings, how Marx himself uh, saw his own ideology, what became known as Marxism, as war on God and uh, uh, his own ideas, you know, uh, on on spiritual issues and uh, and Satanism. I mean, this this stuff is for real. So I'm I'm making none of this stuff up, ladies and gentlemen. But before I proceed, let me define our terms so that you will understand. Marxism, Leninism, and Stalinism—they're all types. Of socialism. They're all just expressions of socialism. So while all Marxism is socialist, while all Leninism is socialist, while all Stalinism is socialist, not all socialism is Marxist or Leninist or Stalinist. So it's important that you understand this. So when I say the socialists, uh, I might be talking about the communists in this, uh, in this regard. And strictly speaking, by the way, communism we refer to the old Soviet Union, um, to China as communist. Strictly speaking, they aren't. And that's because communism in, in socialist speak, communism is the highest stage of socialism. It's this, this utopian stage, uh, which is utterly unachievable. It's never been achieved, never will be achieved, cannot be achieved. But the idea is that when you achieve Communism, it's the highest stage of socialism. It's, it's this plateau, this utopian plateau where there's no longer need for government and everybody shares and shares alike and everything is wonderful. So strictly speaking, communism has never happened, but we nonetheless use the term and we use it to refer to the old Soviet Union, to refer to North Korea, um, Vietnam, China, and others. So having defined those terms, let us, let us move forward here. Communism 
socialism, Leninism, Marxism, Stalinism, all of these are by definition atheistic. They are atheistic to their black-hearted core. Now, I will have people on social media and elsewhere argue with me over this. They will say, I, I'm a Christian and I'm a socialist. Well, okay, but that's like saying you're an Alabama and an Auburn fan. It's like saying you're a Yankees and a Red Sox fan. Uh, it's like saying you're a Packers and a, uh, a Vikings fan. You're either one or the other. You know, you, you can't be both. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Maybe that you have some favorable opinions about both, but you can't, it, it, at some point, those ideas are going, going to be in conflict with one another. And it's important that you understand this. And that is because anyone who's, who says that they're a Christian and a socialist, either they don't know really what Christianity is <clears throat> because they don't know their Bibles, or they don't know what socialism really is, uh, or they don't know what either one of them are. Um, there is this, this great fiction that socialism is kind of a political expression of Christianity. It isn't. It is an effort to supplant the Christian faith with a secular, godless ideology. And, and so socialism, again, by definition, because it's atheistic, it doesn't uh, adhere to any kind of transcendent absolute truth. It maintains there really just is no such thing. And as I said in the... Uh, the grace effect, and is often quoted on social media, socialism is just atheism masquerading as political philosophy. I mean, that's, that's all that it really is. And that's why socialist regimes, because they do understand <laughs> that they're godless, socialist regimes harbor great hostility for the Christian faith. Socialist regimes historically always make war on the Christian faith. Even uh, soft socialist regimes, let's say like the, uh, the British or French governments these days, they allow for churches and they uh, allow for preaching. They even allow references to scripture and prayer. But you will notice that they, they increasingly um, move in the walls on the church and on the Christian faith. Perhaps you've seen just in recent months, a woman was standing near, not on the property of, but near um, a, a an abortion clinic in London, and she had her eyes closed, and they arrested her. They arrested her. You can find the, 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 the video of this online. They arrested her for praying, saying she couldn't do this, saying you, you can't do this. They have now passed a law saying, you know, you're, you can't do this. And it's interesting because when the police come to her, she's standing just like this. And so they come to her and ask her what she's doing. And she says that she's, you know, she's standing there. She's not harming anyone. She's not talking to anyone. She's not blocking the entrance. She's not harassing people. She's simply standing there. And they asked her, are you praying? And she said, I might be. She said, I might be. Um, but you see, the idea was, you know, you can't, you can't do this. You can't pray here. So isn't it interesting that, that these regimes, which are atheistic and say there is no, you know, that God is like Santa Claus, the very thought that she might actually be praying because deep down 
they know that God is real. This is why Scripture says, the fool says in his heart, the psalmist says this twice, the, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And why is he a fool for saying that? Because Romans 2.15 says that God has written his law upon the hearts of men, meaning that you're not born a tabula rasa. You're not, you're not born not believing in God. You are born, and an the, the Oxford research psychologist, uh, Olivera Petrovich, I uh, make reference to her in my book, The Grace Effect. She's done the research on this. Children are born believing in God. Now, I want to be clear, they're not born as Christians. They're not born as believers in a specific God or specific religion, specific faith. They are born theists. They're born with a predisposition to believe in God. And this is Romans 2.15. God has written his law upon the hearts of men. So why the psalmist says twice that the fool says in his heart that there is no God is because it requires an active suppression, an active suppression of what your senses are telling you, that there is a God. This is why Romans 1 speaks of um, you know, the su suppression of the truth, because we've been given um, a measure of light, moral light, intellectual light, as to what the truth actually is. And please understand what I'm trying to tell you. I'm not saying, you know, some kind of um, Star Wars, you know, the the force within, within you that, that you search within yourself for the truth. I believe what Blaise Pascal said, uh, the, you know, the atheist turned philosopher, excuse me, turned Christian, and he was a philosopher, a scientist, an artist, and that is, it is in vain, O oh men, that you seek within yourself the cure for all your miseries, for within yourself, all you'll, you, you'll never find the true and the good. That is correct. However, the Lord has nonetheless implanted a kind of microchip, as it were, that speaks to us um, through our conscience. I mean, the conscience is the soul's voice. And it tells us that there is a God. Richard Dawkins's conscience tells him there is a God. Uh, the Muslim knows that there is a God, and a voice within him tells him that it's not Allah. So I find it fascinating that socialist regimes, communist regimes, have always made war on God. It's just a question of the degree to which they make war on God. Do they make war on God, um, you know, the way that we're discussing today with Patesh Prison, or do they make war on God the way we're discussing today with the woman who's standing near the abortion clinic who might be praying? And why is that a threat to us? Because they know that God is real. So this is quite, quite uh, astounding to me. In the case of Patesh Prison, I decided to go there because it was the most infamous prison in the world. Alexander Solzhenitsyn spoke of it as the place of the, the most horrible crimes against humanity in modern times. Now, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the 1970 Nobel Prize winner for literature, a man who became a Christian, a Russian dissident writer, eventually exiled, which he said was literary suicide um, for him. But... Um, Solzhenitsyn himself was never in prison there. And I actually don't think Wormbrand was in prison there, but that he was a uh, 
at another prison that was very much like it uh, in Romania, but he nonetheless makes references to it. So I decided to go to this place because I'd heard so much about it. And you see, I've been to um, so many of the concentration camps. And uh, you may wonder why would you choose to go to a concentration camp? Because I believe, ladies and gentlemen, I believe these places, there's an effort to forget them. Governments don't want to remember them. People don't want to remember them. And, um, and as a historian, I really believe strongly that just as we would go, let's say, to the Normandy beaches, where I've been many times, um, to give honor to the memory of those men who landed on those beaches and secured the blessings of liberty for us and for um, all of Western Europe. Those men deserve to be remembered. Their sacrifice deserves to be remembered. The people who suffered, the anonymous people, the, the, the nameless people who died by the millions in places like Auschwitz and Patasht deserve to be remembered. Those places deserved our support, those museums, and they deserve, um, their stories deserve to be told to the extent that we can. And so years ago, I took students to Auschwitz. Um, I took students to Dachau. I took my oldest son to, um, I don't recall if he went to, I'm not sure if I took Michael to Auschwitz, but I know I took him to Dachau and to excuse me, to Buchenwald, to Mauthausen, to Middlebaugh Dora, to several of the concentration camps. These are very, uh, excuse me, I have to take a drink, this coffee, excuse me. These are um, not exciting places to go. They're quite depressing. And I noticed a couple of days ago that Lawrence Fox, the British actor who he follows me on Twitter and I followed him back, and um, he posted a picture of someone doing selfies at Auschwitz. And I attribute that to um, profound ignorance um, and a lack of respect for the place where they are. Well, for the same reason, I wanted to go to Patesh. Now, the number of people who died in Patesh, nothing like the numbers that died in the concentration camps. It was a much smaller group of people, roughly 5,000 prisoners who were there. And what is known as the Patesht prison, excuse me, the Patesht experiment, what would become known as the Patesht experiment, took place between 1949 and 1951. And it was called that because it was at this prison where they were kind of testing a means of making an individual renounced their belief in God, renounced their families, renounced their friends, renounced their entire being, and reprogrammed those people into becoming torturers of other people in the prison. Now, you would say, I would never do that. It annoys me when people say things like this because you have no idea what it is that individuals like this went through. I'll never forget giving a, um, a lecture uh, presentation to a church. And at the time you had, I think it was 21 Syrian Christians who were put in yellow jumpsuits and taken to the beach um, where they were beheaded by members of ISIS. And someone's saying to me, you know, um, shame on, on those Syrian Christians, you know, for renouncing their faith or the individual who did renounce their faith, convert to Islam or something like this. And I say, do you not understand 
what these individuals went through, they could have filmed them a dozen times. And that person could have refused a dozen times. And then they just start all over again. Uh, we know that they drugged some of them. We know that they, they tortured them horribly, threatened family members. You just simply don't know what you would do under those kind of circumstances. Uh, within the sound of my voice, there might be someone, maybe someone who has been through something like this, but unlikely. So when we come back in just a moment, I'm going to tell you what happened at Patesh Prison and why it matters for us today, because I believe that we're heading in this kind of direction today. And to be, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And, uh, and to remember these things is to prevent them from happening again. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. We hope you'll uh, join us again on the other side in just a moment. Welcome back to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I am Larry Alex Taunton. We're talking part two of Patesh Prison in Romania. Something I really want to say that, that Matt and I were discussing off air uh, is this. Uh, if you are a, a pastor, um, a Sunday school teacher, a youth minister, somebody who is in professional ministry, I really want to encourage you to engage the culture. That really matters, and it it matters that you are um, you are making scripture relevant, you know, to the people who are in your congregations. Too often, an individual comes away from a message. You know, they listen to your presentation on Acts chapter two, and they come away and they go, "Well, that was that was very interesting. That was very helpful." You know, we learned about Pentecost today. But they leave not really knowing what that has to do with what is actually going on in the culture. Ladies and gentlemen, our God has not abandoned us on issues like artificial intelligence. He has not abandoned us on issues like Marxism. He hasn't abandoned us on issues like racism. He hasn't abandoned us on issues like um, the the non-word transgenderism. Scripture speaks to all of these things with with broad principles that speak to family, that speak to truth, that speak to education, that speak to knowledge. And it is very, very important that you are boldly proclaiming the truth in your pulpits, in your Sunday school classes, with your youth groups. Uh, this is your primary you know, primary job, and that you find courage, that you find backbone to do this, because I promise you that the Lord is watching. He's paying attention um, to what is happening here. So I just want to give you that charge to make sure that you get out and that you begin proclaiming the truth. But it's important, of course, that you know the truth. It's important that you know your Bibles, that you understand Scripture. So anyway, all of that said, um, it is, uh, it's very important that you engage on these issues. So Patesh Prison. Patesh Prison was, this maybe won't encourage you, Patesh Patesh Prison was a place designed for those individuals who would not bend the knee to communism, to the godlessness of communism. They refused to worship the state. And at the end of the day, socialist, communist, Marxist regimes, that's the end goal, that the state is... See, this is why they want to get rid of belief in God, because anyone who believes in God is a potential rebel because they believe that there is a law that is higher than the state and that all men and their governments 
stand to be judged by that God. So I, as a Christian, for instance, why I stand opposed to Marxism, why I stand opposed to so-called transgenderism. And by the way, misgendering someone is calling them something other than what they actually are. It's not, it's not, they say that misgen misgendering people is, is when you call them something other than what they want to be called. But if I say that I want to be called a woman and you go along with that, that's when you're misgendering me. It's actually missexing is really what we should say. Gender is grammatical. Sex is biological. Misgendering is wrong in, in multiple ways. But uh, misgendering would be calling me a woman when I'm clearly not a woman. That's misgendering. So I was very glad to see that Elon Musk has just now, as of I think a couple of days ago, removed that from Twitter. Twitter, Twitter would ban you. If you, um, you know, they would uh, uh, suspend your account if you called someone something other than what they wanted to be called. Don't go along with this kind of stuff. And, uh, and see, and I believe those things are wrong because I, as a Christian, believe there is a God who has established laws that are higher than the laws of the state. This is what the founders of, the, of this country, the United States, believed when they said we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are endowed by their creator, their creator, they didn't say they're endowed by their governments with certain unalienable rights. And among these are like, no, they're endowed by their creator. And so they were condemning, in writing the Declaration of Independence, they were condemning the British government's laws by saying these are damnable laws. They are immoral laws because they're in violation of God's laws. So the individuals who went to Patesh prison, who were rounded up and brought there, were individuals who refused to acknowledge the state as supreme. They say, no, 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 no. The laws of God are higher than that. So they were mostly students, uh, that is to say uh, college students, who were rounded up by the secret police shortly after the um, communists took over in Romania in 1945. They rigged an election in 46. Uh, we now know that the anti-communists probably won that election in a landslide by about 80% of the vote. But does this sound familiar? The communists delayed the election results for several days, and when they announced the election results, <laughs> shocking, the communists had somehow won. So they took over, they grad uh, gradually radicalized various elements of the government. And this, by the way, brings us back to Frederick Forsyth, because Forsyth is describing in this brilliant novel, this very cerebral novel, the way Marxists work. They target the, um, the levers of power. They go straight for the levers of power. It isn't so much about converting the, the populace. It's about just going after the levers of power, getting control. Have you ever noticed, for instance, I've said this many times, how it seems like maybe in your law practice or perhaps in your homeowners association or perhaps in your public school district, there aren't really that many radicals, but somehow they're running everything. And it is because they, by nature, by personality, they can't stand the idea somebody somewhere might be free. 
they absolutely demand that you adhere to their rules. And so they target the levers of power. Conservatives by nature don't do this. I, you know, I recall years ago, um, I, I accepted an offer to be, you know, an administrator in a, in a prep school where I taught, you know, three decades ago, simply because I didn't want a liberal in that position. Because I thought, this person will make life miserable for everyone else. I will get in. If, if I become president of the HOA, I want to disband the HOA. That would be my goal. I want to disband the HOA. And it's because I really don't feel like it's my right to tell you how high your grass is. Or that you need to recycle. Or what color you paint your door. I just am not that interested in doing that. I believe in live and let live. Um, obviously, we have to live in community, and there uh, there have to be some rules that govern us, but stay in your lane, and I'm good. But that's not the way Marxists work. And so Frederick Forsyth is explaining they target the levers of power, and the first thing they do he points out, and of course history demonstrates this, is that they they then radicalize the co coercive branches of government, police and military. This, by the way, is what defund the police is all about. Defund the police is to make, make, make police first, on the one hand, don't empower them to enforce the law. This will make, you know, because military and police are, generally speaking, they are conservative elements of government. They are conservative elements of government. Um, and hence the reason they tend to be supported by conservatives. It's because conservatives who have, you know, um, bumper stickers that say, you know, back the blue and, you know, I support, you know, our troops and this kind of thing. They don't, they don't have those in communist countries. That's not the same. And it's because the whole defund the police movement, the idea is to make every police officer not sleep easy at night, to worry for his life, to feel that he will be thrown in prison in a George Floyd types of situation, to feel that if he draws his weapon and he shoots a violent criminal, he might go to prison for life. Um, he is, you know, his house might be burned to the ground. This is... This is designed to make, I'll say, good members of the police, good members of the military, ultimately to resign, then to replace them with radical elements, and then in phase two, to enforce them, excuse me, to empower them to enforce radical laws. Now the police become a Stasi. They become a KGB. Um, they become... Um, a terrifying uh, force, a Gestapo within government. So they go from defund the police, from not enforcing the law, getting rid of the conservative elements within military and uh, police and replacing them with radical elements that are now empowered to terrorize a population. That's the goal. And Forsyth explains this um, brilliantly. Uh, and it's not, again, it's a novel, but what he's saying in regards to this is factual. It's, uh, it's true, and history demonstrates it. And this is what happened in Romania. It's what happened throughout uh, the East Bloc under the communists. And so as the Romanian police 
were radicalized, <clears throat> they then began rounding up, arresting en masse those elements that were deemed ideologically unreliable, which is to say uh, they were all called anti-communists. And an anti-communist was a catch-all damning term used to condemn anyone who wouldn't bend the knee to the state. And it wasn't just Christians. There were, you know, fascist elements. There were, you know, anarch, uh, uh, anarchists who were rounded up. But by and large, it meant Christians. And so Christians were brought to Patesht prison where they were tortured. And um, they were given what was called re-education. You can read about how this was done in China during the Cultural Revolution, so-called, and uh, during other periods uh, in history in communist regimes. And the idea was to destroy all that a man held dear, everything that he held dear, his belief in God, his family, his friends, his own integrity, everything. Torture him by making him curse the name of Christ to denounce his family as enemies of the people and to swear loyalty to the state. Now, this process was called unmasking. So when I went to Patesht, I was given special access to the prison. I was the only person um, in the prison. And again, the, the prison isn't active today. It's now a memorial, but it's a memorial that isn't supported by the state. And that's because the state wants to forget it. So it's supported by private funds. You can go online and you can make a donation. I hope you will. Pitesht Prison. Uh, P-I-T-E-S-T-I uh, Prison. You'll find that online. And anyway, this process was called unmasking. And prisoners were taken to a room. I was in that room. It was about the size of my studio here, which is to say about you know 20 by 25, you know, something like that. They were brought into this room, they were placed into a circle, and they were beaten until they would confess their own treason. Now you say, well, what if they hadn't committed treason? They knew they hadn't committed treason. They were beaten until they would confess crimes they hadn't committed. And um, they were, um, you know, uh, the, the, we're told the torturers wanted them to refer to their wives and daughters as whores and prostitutes and these kinds of things. We're told that they particularly, you know, like that. They want they were to denounce their friends whom they had been deliberately imprisoned with. So think about that. You're in prison with your own friends and you're watching your friend being tortured, which is a kind of torture to you, until he's willing to denounce you. And then of course, your prison. And those who are known to be Christians were made to take a communion of feces and urine. A priest would be forced to consecrate it. A cross, we are told, was smeared in feces, and Christians were told to worship it. So this was done on a regular basis. So again, here we see a regime attacking God, who they say isn't real. But Wormbrand, who went through something, Richard Wormbrand, who I made reference to in the previous segment, who went through something very similar to this in Romania in a, uh, in a different prison. And by the way, this prison is in, uh, not literally, but it's very near in the shadows of Vlad the Impaler's castle. If you know who Vlad the Impaler was, Vlad the Impaler was the, um, the historical basis for Bram Stoker's Dracula. And uh, Vlad the Impaler was a, uh, you know, was a, I mean, his name, Vlad the Impaler. He was a, uh, uh, a, a terrifying, bloodthirsty figure 
from history. And, um, and so it is. Uh, Romanian history is a bloody, bloody history, this blood-soaked ground. And so it is perhaps, I guess, uh, not surprising that very near that castle would be a prison like this that was so horrifying. And ladies and gentlemen, my, my intention here isn't to scandalize you in telling you these things. I'm telling you these things because you need to hear them. You need to not not turn away from them. You need to not close your eyes. You need to unflinchingly know what happened uh, if we were to avoid these things. So it was in the aftermath of World War II. I, I doubt this generation of students received this, but I think that most of you listening to me probably did. We saw the bodies, the bulldozers, you know, pushing piles of bodies of uh, people in the mass graves at places like Auschwitz. It's horrifying. Those images are in, uh, you know, burned into my memory. But that's the way it should be. They should horrify me, and they should be a reminder to me of what man is capable of doing to other men. Homo hominius uh, lupus. Man is, is wolf unto man, I believe is the old Latin um, maxim. And uh, with that in mind, again, not to scandalize you, but so that you will understand the hatred for God and the attempt to destroy the very souls of these individuals. Men were forced to sodomize each other and watch the torture of their friends. They were told repeatedly that their wives had remarried. No one has asked about you. No one has come to the prison asking about you. Your family, your friends, and of course, these were all lies. No one is inquired. They've all forgotten you. Ah, here's a letter. We've received news that your wife has remarried your best friend. These were the kinds of things that they were told because the idea was to give them no hope. There is no hope for you. Wormbrand says that uh, torture has never ceased in inventing new means of inflicting uh, physical and psychological distress on individuals. And um, this is the kind of place that Patesh Prison was. Now, we're going to discuss this a little bit more when I come back, and, uh, and we'll close with the lessons that we can learn in this and what you can do. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show, and we're discussing something quite heavy today, but it's something that I really think you need to know and you need to listen to because we live in an era where history is being forgotten. It's being obliterated. Uh, I think it's George Orwell. George Orwell, who was, by the way, a socialist. George Orwell, though, who began later in life to see the implications of his own worldview, and some of this uh, came about through his own travels through Eastern Europe, places like Ukraine and uh, Russia, where he saw what he, w the idealized version of what he believed in, and then he saw the reality of it, that it, they weren't the same thing. And of course, Orwell wrote not only 1984, but he wrote Animal Farm. And Animal Farm is, is, uh, is a brilliant um, dismantling of what socialism of what communist regimes really do, how they lie to their people, the propaganda, um, the poverty, the destruction of the soul. And um, 
so it is here, um, ladies and gentlemen. We we talk about this. There is an effort. When I was going to Patesh Prison, I flew into Bucharest. And, uh, you know, you go to a, a good hotel will have a good concierge. And they know everything. Train times, you know, uh, museums, the cost of this, the cost of that. You get tickets to the play. You can you get tickets to the museum. You name it, they can do it. I say, hey, what's the best way to get to Patesh Prison? What? Patesh Prison. Well, there's a city by the name of Patesh, but... I don't know anything about a muse, uh, a prison there. Like, do you have a relative in this prison? No, 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 no. Not, not that kind of place. It's a memorial to a an old communist prison. Never heard of it. I'll research it. Come back to you. I asked the people at the desk, the counter. They knew nothing about it. I asked, um, you know, guy running the restaurant. I asked all kinds of Romanians, have you heard about this? Taxi drivers, so on. None of them have heard of it. And what is interesting is one woman told me when I began describing it to her, because she became quite fascinated, she um, knew very little about it. She knew very little about her own country's communist history, but she could tell me that her own grandfather was a pastor and he died in such a prison. And I said, well, this is history you should know. This is history you should know because he may have died in this prison or one very much like it. She said, all I know is my parents told me that, that um, he, was a, um, he was a Christian, he was a pastor, he was arrested for his beliefs, and they never saw him again. And I said, well, there you go. Um, this is the kind of place that we're talking about here. So these individuals were brought to this place, and you would think that they would just shoot them be much easier, wouldn't it? Just line them up against... I mean, if this is the way you think as a communist, you think you just line them up against the wall and just shoot them all. Why go to the trouble and the expense of imprisoning them for years and devising ways of torturing them? But this is what they did. This is what they did. And they did it because they wanted to make them turn upon themselves. So the idea was... Again, it was seen as an experiment. Hey, can we reprogram Christians through torture, through continued re-education, through continued pressure? Can we reprogram them so that they become anti-Christian, so that they become torturers of Christians, so that they become hardline communists? This process, as I've said, was called unmasking, and it was deemed to be successful when a man was willing to torture his own friends. And they would hand him a pair of pliers and say, now go over there to that guy over there and pull his teeth out. Some of them did. Some of them did. Um, if you read the testimonies of those who were there, they would say that the, the tortures were endless, sleeplessness, feeding them feces and urine, beating them. He said, often with, with multiple intentions. So they beat us about the face to dif disfigure us. It was meant to disfigure us. They beat us in the, in, in the head, um, you know, to cause additional pain and additional anguish. And then they would break our bones so that even when they weren't in the room torturing you, of course, you could never find comfort. And if you've ever broken very many bones, you understand um, what this is all about. 
Warmbrand tells a story. Again, he wasn't at Patesh, but he was at one like Patesh, where he says that one day he said beautiful Romanian music could be heard in the corridor. This was classical music. He said most of us haven't heard, hadn't heard music like that in years. And he said it began to lift our spirits as we would listen to this beautiful music filling the corridors. And he said, and then it stopped. It was a record player. And he said it was stopped suddenly. And you began hearing a woman screaming as she was being tortured. And he said, and every man in that prison knew that it was his wife or his daughter. That's what they wanted you to think. It was your wife or your daughter that was being tortured in the corridor. So they would torture animals in front of them. He said men would go crazy saying, please stop doing that to the cat. And again, my intention here, ladies and gentlemen, maybe this will be our least listened to podcast <laughs> because people think, oh, it's just torture listening to this. You need to hear this. You need to know what human beings are willing to do to one another. And it is because if we're to prevent things like this happening again, you can't have the rosy notion it can't happen here because it can and that means your voice needs to be heard while your voice can be heard. I know there will be some who will listen to this and will go, oh, Larry, this is ridiculous. Never happened in the United States. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. And the way you prevent that, of course, is by taking a stand. That means by holding your uh, representatives, your legislators accountable uh, right now, we have members of government who feel they're accountable to no one. That needs to change. It means prayer. Ladies and gentlemen, our God is ready to act on our behalf. Please act like it. Please, please stop acting like we're uh, polishing the decks on a sinking ship. We are not. We are given a task, and that task is to, to shine the light into the darkness. Believe in the God who is there and who is not silent. Uh, begin speaking up and engaging in your, you know, with your neighbors over the backyard fence, at the water cooler, at the lunch table. Begin um, engaging with your school boards. Get your kids out of public schools. I don't care what this costs you. I don't care what sacrifices you have to make. They're not too much. You have to do it. You have to do it. And ladies and gentlemen, let's, we are seeing a situation where the tail is wagging the dog. That must change. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Tune in next time. Thanks for being with us. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show.